Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome not to the 1974 ITV World Cup presentation, as that theme may have implied for the more eagle, eagle-eared listeners out there. But instead to Achtung Millwall, a special, as we have now seem to be approaching another lockdown period or something akin to it, maybe not called that. I thought it was time for a special edition. And who do I turn to in a special edition's afoot? It is Mr. Neil Crazy Horse Andrews. Welcome to the show, Neil. He only turns to me when you get desperate. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> we are talking, dear listeners, of the North American Soccer League, the NASL, which was um, a major professional soccer league, football league, as we would call it. So we're going to stick with soccer, I think, for purposes of this show, just to um, to keep it clear. That operated in the USA and Canada between the years of 1968 to 1984. Um, Neil, I I can only speak from personal memory here. I found the NASL period um, utterly fascinating um, at the time. We got glimpses of it, glamorous glimpses on the likes of World of Sport, where they'd show the occasional footage of this exotic, sun-soaked, impossibly glamorous thing, as as, as I thought of it, in suburban London. It, it, it's, it was quite a landmark in the development of football in the USA, and yet it was ultimately a failure, but some would argue a long-term success. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, I mean, when you think about when it was at its height, so late 70s, so, you know, you got strikes, yeah. and depression, and then so in the UK, and then you turn to the States, and it's just glamorous. You know, you've got cheerleaders, you've got Bugs Bunny running out with the teams, you know, but yeah. even the footballs, the footballs themselves, you know, they had that, kind of the the panels but one of the panels was blue with a red star i think it was yeah yeah, those balls for your beauty sets and so you know it's kind of you could buy the teams as well i've still got the tampa bay rowdies sorry um it's easy for me to say um (laughs) um so you know it was it invaded the uk culture um and you know obviously one of the reasons why it was so dominant in kind of the psyche is because a lot of UK players went out to play there in the summer. And so you used to get some people like Trevor Francis, et cetera, going out there in things like Roy the Rovers, Shoot Magazine, et cetera, used to run specials. And, you know, it was the names and the kits. And, you know, some of the kits were were pretty special. It was the whole Americana of it, which blew my little mind in Mottingham, South East London listeners in the early 70s. I mean, this is a Millwall show. So the reason that it occurred to me to do this show, Neil and I have been talking about doing something like this for a little while and just never, never got around to it. But my eye fell upon a list of Millwall players that actually played in the USA and and Canada, I mustn't forget Canada in, in, in all of this. Um, it's from a book called The um, uh, the Mill Miscellany by Dave Sullivan. And I, I, I sent Neil a, a list of, of mill players who had played across the Atlantic, um, mainly, Neil, in the in the, the kind of 70s period. Uh, there, there was, there was, it goes in fits and starts, the story of a North American football, really, doesn't it? There's There have been numerous attempts over the, over the 20th century to establish it. Um, stateside, um, and in, in fairness to the, the USA national team, doesn't actually have a bad international record, does it? You know, um, for a nation that's always, even now, still seen as 
in 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 soccer football terms as a developing nation in in that sense. There's a lot more to it than meets the eye because everyone assumes that football or soccer only started in the late 60s in America, which is not true at all. Um, the I think I think I'm right in saying that the the fifth and sixth um, international teams in terms of historical um dominance in terms you know after england scotland wales and ireland are usa canada who played an international in the late 19th century um so soccer has always been a big element due to the expats that went over there but you know even in the like 20s and 30s there were leagues you know there were teams out there you know lots of um scottish players lots of irish players in particular um used to migrate out there and they formed these leagues and if you do a bit of research and go far enough you'll find that you know there's there's a bit of history there as well because um i can't remember which one it is but um there was an american team and their claim to fame they were the first team ever to wear numbers on the back of their shirts um right. way back okay. um before you know it even been considered in the uk um you know and they're great names like bethlehem steelers and things like that um and, you know but it was very um the teams are very much based on the immigration factor so you had lots of italian teams irish teams you know english teams scottish teams etc but you know it, it was a thriving sport um then after the second world war it kind of disappeared a bit and then in the late 60s there was a number of initiatives to get it moving again so there was actually two professional leagues at the time there was it was a a fantastic bit of marketing like you would expect from america but there was the usa which was the united soccer association and then there was the i think it was the north american professional soccer league or the north yeah the national professional soccer league i think it was the npsl and they actually had two rival leagues going running in 1967. Now, the USA, as it was known, actually imported teams from overseas. So there was uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers went out. I think it was Dundee United went out over there. Um, and, of course, the, the famous thing about that is Dundee United went out over there, played in orange and black, came back and adopted as that as their own strip. Um, but the, North, um, the rival one, the NPSL, they actually imported players, uh, lots from Yugoslavia, lots from South America, lots from um, the Caribbean, and formed a, a rival league. The key thing between the two was that one of them had the TV contract with CBS, but one of them had the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, the, the authority to play or form of... The sanction league. of... Um, I think the sanction, was, that's the word I was looking the, the for. FIFA, FIFA. The FIFA... Yeah. Um, permission to exist almost you know yeah, um, which is quite you, valuable you had these two rival leagues but obviously after that first season it was very hard for them to maintain two leagues in such a um large area because the the, uh, the other thing was that you know you had a bunch of teams on the east coast bunch of teams on the west coast nothing in the middle mm. and so they decided to merge to form the nasl um i think it was in 1968 and so bought the tv contracts bought the uh, sanctioning from fifa and you had i think it was a 17 team league and that's when you know things got rolling in the states started the to problem happen. Was, yeah. yeah after that first the tv um audiences were so disappointing that cbs dropped them and they dramatically went down to i think it was five teams because a lot of these owners they had two problems one was that they had own sports stadiums they tried to fill outside of the american football season but yeah, there was yeah. a kind of all stage you couldn't have two teams in the same city. So there was a lot of teams that became franchises and would relocate. Um, so the LA Toros, I think they were called, uh, relocate to San Diego, for example, um, just on that ruling. And then they, you know, after it kind of, they had the financial difficulties because, you know, people didn't want to bankroll these clubs. You know, they got rid of all the professionals. So for a couple of years, you just had, you know, third and fourth division players who went over looking for contracts and, um, essentially american college kids and so the quality yeah. wasn't that good but the, you know there were some fascinating stories there was one team um it was dallas i think it was who actually went on a world tour and so this this hungarian manager put together this team of europeans who'd never even visited america never even stepped foot so it was kind of youngsters from kind of the lower leagues in england scotland um sweden and the continent and they all dressed in cowboy outfits, even though no one was American. Uh, they toured the Far East. They toured everywhere, basically. They played army teams. They played, you know, teams in um, Japan, etc. I think they lost every game. They came back to start the regular season, obviously knackered. They'd lost a few players along the way. 
and I think they only won five games all year. And <laughs> the man yeah, was sacked. No, good but for performance. It, it was kind of you know it was one of those things where the razzmatazz was there from the start, but. It was after they merged. There was a guy called Phil Woosner who played for Aston Villa. Yeah, he was a big name at the time, yeah. Yeah, and became the um, director or administrator of the entire league. And he was the one that kind of worked out how to get it to appeal to the American audiences. And that was basically pinging people like Pele out of retirement, you know, getting Bobby Moore out there, you know, Franz Beckenbauer. Yeah. Um, which in turn led to some some great quotes. Like there was always the one when Franz Beckenbauer was playing for um, the York Cosmos. One of the owners turned around and just to the manager and said, "Get that crowd further upfield. We're not paying him to defend." Um, <laughs> completely missing the point, uh, you know. Um, the problem of them, the, my favourite anecdote I've ever come across. There was the they used to award like American football the MVP each year. Yeah, America. most valuable player. Yeah, and there was yeah. an American called Steve David, not Steve Davis, the snooker player, but Stephen David, <laughs> who won it in 1975 for his goals. And then the following year when they had the bicentenary um, kind of tournament where um, England, Italy and Brazil went out there and played Team USA, which featured yeah. Bobby Moore and Pele. Yeah, that's right. One reporter asked Steve David what it would be like to play alongside Pele. And he actually turned around deadpan in all seriousness and said, well, perhaps you should ask Pele what it's like to be you know, playing with Steve David because I'm the MVP. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 ideas above his station. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. I mean, the... the, the as you say, I mean, it began in 68, the NASO, and, and really took off, I think, from probably the mid to, to late 70s. This was, an, it's, it's hard to describe this back to kids now because we live in this digital age, Neil, where everything is watchable live and um, all the time. I mean, pretty much sport is now a 24 7 thing, for better or for worse. Um, there's, there's arguments for both. But I, I, I can't explain to the modern ear the impossible glamorousness of it all the the, the sun-soaked stadia the the names the kits the fact that you had i mean you've mentioned pele i'm just looking at wikipedia with johan cruyff would play out there george best would play out there get Muller, beckenbau carlos alberto these were all at the arguably coming towards the end of their career looking for a payday but it just created this scene in the usa where you know, there's this constant thing in English football that we were kind of grey days played by grey people, weren't we? And out there, the California surf um, met the uh, the Tampa Bay rowdies, and it was it was all like the future. And um, it, there was there was something to it. I mean, I, I I always loved to see these little snippets. You didn't see much of it on British television, listeners. But you did get bits on that kind of post wrestling, or just prior to the wrestling on World of Sport. They would show foreign sports, wouldn't they? And you get a yeah. bit of NASL from time to time, which gave you this tantalising glimpse of a of a parallel universe played in exotic places like you know San Diego and whatever. Yeah, well, there, there was the glamour there as well. You know, there's a great book about it. You know, uh, rock and roll soccer. It's called Funny Enough, and the reason why it's you've got it there, I see it. I yeah. have got it. Yeah, but um, by Ian Plendere. And the, the, the reason why it's called Rock and Roll because you had a lot of rock stars get involved. So Elton yeah. John got involved. Um, Rick Wakeman got involved. Um, did he? I didn't know that. <laughs> Rick Wakeman got involved as well. And he said, I spent an awful lot of money, but I had a lot of fun doing it. He owned a franchise as well. But then you got, I don't want to use Jimmy Hill in the same context, but I'm going to use Jimmy Hill in the same context. <laughs> and Rick Wakeman, there's a sentence really gets said. Yeah, yeah. out there, you know, he took Trevor Francis out there with Detroit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, lost a lot of money and then he went to Washington I think the Washington diplomats and lost a lot of money trying to kind of sell this kind of to the Americans and you know it was it was a, a common thing to see rock stars and you know people turn up to these events you know and actually own the teams but then you know, like you said you had lots of players that went out there you know big names that went out there you know young Cruyff, George Best obviously yeah. who you know was actually described as the best player ever to play in the league believe it or not um but it was also interesting for some of the names that also went out there at the beginning of their careers. You know, like Peter Beersley was out there. Bruce Grobelar was out there. Graham yeah, um, Tunis went out there when he was very, very young. And obviously, Gordon Hill went out there as well. Uh, we mentioned Trevor Francis. Peter Wythe was out there. Although yeah. I think Peter Wythe had a good goal-scoring record. But um, you also got people like Derek Smithhurst who went out there. And um, a few <laughs> of yeah, your yeah. older listeners will remember Derek Smithhurst <laughs> and remember he's 
should we say, a lack of proficiency in front of goal. Um, anyone that was watched the big match revisited against Portsmouth will testify to him missing sitters. But he went out there and found his shooting boots. And, you know, he got to the point where he was top score, goal scorer with the Tampa Bay Rowdies, I think it was for a number of years. Um, you know, and he was an enormous success in the States. Um, but that happened quite a lot. There was a lot of players that went out there who, you know, didn't find their shooting boots, but would get a lot of assists. But for the Americans, it was all about the goals. Um, yeah. And so it was yeah, like this yeah. weird thing where, you know, if you were, you know, one of these strikers, you know, a bit like Gary Lineker, who would just put, you know, tap it in. You, you mm. were a superstar kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of, you know, there was, there was quite a few um, hit and miss stories, should we say. I mean, we, we were just saying before we began to record, listeners, I mean, the, the one thing that really struck me as I was looking through the Wikipedia page, Neil has also sent me a link to a wonderful website called Fun While It Lasted. That's all one word, funwhileitlasted.net, which has a load a load of information. I think that book that you just mentioned, Neil, is, is, is um, one's based on the other or vice versa. It's, it's well worth a look. The book the book looks fascinating if you like 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 myself love this kind of stuff. Um, but one thing that struck me was um, 1978. The the league's most valuable player was Mike Flanagan of Chum, <laughs> a middling kind of um, winger come striker. No one's most valuable player in England, but a superstar for the season in the, in the US. It, you know, who says the American dream's dead? It's funny you say that because you've got to put it into context, though, because, you know, back in the day, people just used to look at the goal scorers. And so to be MVP, they put yeah. in the goal scorers, the assists, most minute played, etc. You know, it was all done statistically like you see it now um, in the in the Premier League. So, you know, it was, to give him his due, he, you know, he probably found his feet against college boys, a bit like Kerry Dixon playing for England. But, um, you know, we, you've got to remember as well that although it's mocked, some of these teams had big success against major you know, European opposition. You know, the most famous well, these were decent players, Neil. These are decent players. I'm just I'm just well, dwelling on Fanagan for a moment for me. I mean, 1976 most valuable player in the league is Pele, a World mm-hmm. Cup winning superstar, iconic figure. Um, Franz Beckenbauer, another World Cup winning um, superstar. Um, Mike Flanagan, 1978. <laughs> And then Johan Cruyff in 1979. Mike yeah. Flanagan is sandwiched by Beckenbauer and Cruyff in that list. I, I, I would live on that. If I, if yeah, I was Mike Flanagan, I would dine out on that. It was the, uh, something, you know, you wouldn't be familiar with. But, you know, if I mean, you've got to remember, I mean, I mean, I, I know it's mocked, but the, the most famous win, I think, was the Atlanta Chiefs when they beat Man City 3-2. And Man City were the league champions. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Malcolm Allison was saying it was a fluke. You know, we were tired. And I think they played them again and lost again. You know. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at some of the victories they had against Hamburg, etc., and Paris Saint-Germain, that was with people like, you know, um, Cruyff in the side. But even later on, Manchester United lost to Toronto Blizzard in the early 80s. You know, and it's kind of... They had decent teams, but the perception is it was a bit of a um, lesser league because it was in America. I think there was the a ten- lot. Yeah, there's a tendency. And I, 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 I'm, I'm striving not to fall into this trap. And listeners, forgive me and Neil if we have. Because I don't think it's fair on US football to fall into this trap. But there was a tendency at the time, certainly, to see it as a slight kind of... Um, if not a no, joke, yeah, yeah there, there was there was a certain certain mirth that was attached to to even discussion of it, and certainly it wasn't spoken of particularly seriously. Um, but in its pomp, I mean, you know, the, the New York Cosmos you've mentioned there, you know, late seventies um, soccer bowl as they call it, maybe things like that didn't help their calls at times. But anyway, the soccer bowl champions they were drawing crowds of, I mean, the, the record crowd was up in the seventy seven thousand, I think, for one of the soccer bowl finals. Yeah, that not bad. It wasn't bad, but you've got to, again, put that in context. I mean, the early audiences and the early crowds. I mean, Chicago yeah. Sting, actually. Um, I, I know another great anecdote about Chicago Sting, but Chicago Go Sting... Go for it, mate. They, they used to draw, you know, 4,000. You know, a lot of the teams used to draw really low crowds. It's pomp, you know, at its height when you had all the rock stars involved, etc. It would draw big audiences and things like Yankee Stadium. But, you know, even Pele was playing in some, you know, some of these rundown, you know, off-the-radar kind of stadiums in the early days when you know they had to kind of cut their cloth accordingly because they just yeah the yeah in terms of chicago sting it was one of two teams in the asl that were named after films 
I was named after the Sting, the movie. It was named after the Sting, the movie, apparently. Well, San Diego Jaws, who played in 1976, was more obvious. That was named after John <laughs> So, yeah, you had six. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, the other, I mean, you go back to novelty, but everyone remembers, I think it was the Colorado Caribous. Well, I, was, I actually picked that one out because I just love the name and the story of the Caribou. We're going off, off tangent. We actually set out to make a Millwolf-based program here, listeners, but we're off on a tangent. Who cares? Well, the, come Carib- back. Yeah. the Caribous of Colorado are my favorite story and favorite club of the NASL period. Yeah, but, but did you see their shirts? Yeah, they were kind of they had leather, leather kind of um, Western style. I had tassels. I had tassels on the shirt. <laughs> and listeners, their color scheme was brown and beige. <clears throat> brown and beige. Beige and brown for the home kit, brown and beige for the away kit with tassels. And everyone remembers the tassel shirts. It always comes up. But some of the shirts, you got to remember, you know, um, anyone that's seen Get Shirty about the Admiral um, kind of team. Yeah. Yeah. Kits that are popular in the UK, so they made a lot of the shirts for the NASL as well. And some of the shirts were, you know, you well, remember, like, you remember, yeah, they're iconic. I mean, you know, you, you're still on any of these retro um kit sites, there's loads of them around there. You'll often the, the California Surf t shirt with its wave coming in on the I've got one of them, yeah. Uh, you know, they're 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 they're, they're must haves for um, you know, the, the, the images and the, the iconography is, is is so good. I just love this story of um, the, the the caribous of Colorado with their their country and western themed um, kits um, were owned by uh, the producer for Blood Sweat and Tears and Chicago. These are ancient rock bands. Listeners, yeah. younger listeners. Um, and we also produced Elton John, Billy Joel, and uh, was based in a, a place called a ghost town called Caribou. I mean, the, the names and the locations were just wonderful um and the storylines of i mean it's a failure i mean that that's that's the, the financial failure so that's that's the um the downside of it but it is it is just wonderful wonderful wonderfully colorful backstory yeah. millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot of the teams, I mean, the LA Toros who we spoke about earlier, they came about because the people behind the LA Rams wanted one of the franchises for the National Hockey League that were expanding at the time, and they didn't get it. And so they had this money to spend, so they decided to form a football club instead. So, you know, it's like, it's amazing. But, you know, bringing it back to kind of like the normal players and people who went out there like Gordon Hill, the reason why they went out there is because you know these players were cheap and they could get them mm. out there um, yeah. know, during the summer. And because the salaries in the UK were so low, you know, it was like people like Barry Kitchen, it was a payday for them. You know, they some are paying in America for in bigger crowds, um, nicer facilities, you know, yeah, yeah. Term, you know, they went to the show where everyone was introduced, you know, individually. There was a chance of winning silverware and you know, the other come back and um and I'd obviously play against Lincoln City the following week at the Den. Where, you know, <laughs> it's a bit of a lurch. That they're shit and sort it out. Well, <laughs> one thing I, I mean, one thing I do remember from the mid seventies 
and I suppose this this idea still exists to some extent, was that America was this vast untapped uh, soccer, and then he said football, soccer market, and it was going to be a superpower of soccer once once the game took hold and took root. Obviously, historically, the, the sports of choice in, in the US have been baseball and, and um, American football, as we call it. The NASL was a real attempt um, to, they went down the route, and I suppose there's two ways you can take this. One is you try and develop the homegrown talent, which is longer term, and I think that's the route that the MSL, the Major League Soccer now, MLS, uh, takes now, trying to develop homegrown players, Neil, as against the star route where you bring in these names often, um, you know, players at the back end of their career to come and bring some reflected glamour from from where they've achieved elsewhere and i think that was that was the that choice of the star route if you like was probably what would do for the league once the economic times turned a little bit chillier in the 80s because it was overstretched and over overwaged and that would lead to the ultimate demise of the nasl in the about the mid 80s 84 i think we said when it finally collapsed yeah wasn't it? it's like well indoor soccer was taken off in america yeah that's a, that's a bizarre thing i've touched that in a sec but um because i've never got my head around indoor soccer as a, as a thing well, you know yeah it's well the, the problem was that you know they ran out of star names because people yeah. turned up with star names you know there's some great stories that you say though going out there at the end of his career and he was playing you know with dodgy knees and in you know, very small, should we say, um, provincial stadiums or you yeah, know, the local yeah, stadiums yeah. kind of thing. Um, you know, and it wasn't really working until Pele signed that. I think that was the turning point. And that's when, you know, the, the money men got behind them. And that's when, you know, it really took off. But like you said, the problem was that there was nothing to keep that sustained going. Um, no. And no. because... America's always, like we said, it's always had a football heritage, which is unknown. I mean, it reached the semi-finals of the first ever World Cup. Immediately, there was yeah. only seventeen. But there. England, one nil famously in nineteen fifty. Yeah, with um, a team made up of pretty much non-Americans. To be fair, um, yeah. but even so, you would have expected a team like England to kind of destroy them. Um, yeah. But you know, they be at the time they'd become a bit of a joke. Um, you know, they were struggling to. But you've got to remember, you've got to put into context as well the World Cup back then and, you know, the places that were offered, they were in the same group as Mexico. So Mexico always qualified. Um, yeah. And if Mexico didn't qualify, you would have to play off against the major power in Europe or major power in South America. It was always a hard thing to you know, get moving until the late 90s when you had players like Roy Wegerly and Casey Keller coming through. And, yeah. you, know, you know, a lot more followed. And once they qualified for the 1990 World Cup, you had that basis there to build on because obviously they had the 94 world cup one of which the provisions of them getting it was that you know you would have to have your own league which they didn't yeah. have at the time the national league which is why the mls came apart outside came up came but the world cup was the world cup in 94 was actually a direct result of the nasl so yeah. Yeah. it was um one of the soccer bowls that happens you know got record viewers and things like that that they decided to put their name in the hat for that world cup and won it um, surprisingly, but if you put it in the context of when they won it, it wasn't as surprising as the context of when they actually held it, where you actually had that kind of um, sneering, oh, it's in America, that's going to be rubbish. Yeah, I mean, I think even the 94 World Cup had a touch of that. There was always the, the kind of, um, you know, derision of uh, Diana Ross taking a penalty to open up the, uh, the the tournament. A lot of this, I think, is... Be fair, I've seen a lot worse snobbery, penalties. Snobbery, isn't it? I've seen a lot worse penalties from England players in shootouts, but I'm fair. <laughs> Scotland have never missed a penalty in a shootout, just for that. <laughs> One of the things that always I, I kind of love this as a as a, as a as a teenager, I suppose, because when you're a teenager, you're willing to to rethink everything. Um, but the willingness of the NASL to mess with the rules and to um, try and create a more entertaining product because they had a, uh, a a football market or a market to try and catch that wasn't didn't have a football consciousness if that makes any sense there's no basis to um to tap into as against say europe and south america and the rest of the world but they were willing very willing neil to to fiddle around with the rules weren't they of the game and, and they, they, they 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 had some very american ideas on presentation and um you know how games would be would be settled i'm just looking at some of the rule changes here i mean they the first thing that fifa 
didn't like was a countdown clock. All, all American sports listeners have a countdown. They count down to zero, which is very un soccerish, which has a, a kind of a, a yeah. going upwards quality, doesn't it? Again, there's the snobbery because I remember from the '94 World Cup, the American crowds were getting confused when it hit 90 minutes, yeah. and the rest they thought it was like, all over. Yeah, why wouldn't you? I remember yeah. in you know basketball, American football, and even ice hockey. You know, when there's a stoppage in play, the clock stops. So yes. it's injury time, but everyone knows the injury time. But in yeah. football, it's only in the ref's hands, um, which is where the kind of key difference is. So you, you kind of get the countdown clock. It kind of does make sense to a certain degree. But obviously, um, sports like ice hockey and American football and you know, obviously basketball, they've been built with these stoppages built into the game. And football has. Absolutely. I, I, so, I, you, I, you know, I, you can never account for that ball being kicked into the crowd at the 88th minute and not getting it back from the Colbo lane end. <laughs> it's, I mean, the countdown clock with the the idea of, a, I suppose it would require an independent timekeeper because you, you pause it when the, the ball is not in play. You know, it, it happens in other sports, but for some reason, football is 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 um, entrenched on on a certain way of, of doing it. But you're right. I mean, if you had a if you had a pause in play when you know a player is injured and then you restart it when he's up and running, it, it, it eliminates a large amount of um, that awful phrase game management that you see in in the modern game particularly or you more maybe you're more aware of it maybe it was always there i don't know but... uh, well it's they're different sports and you know if a punt goes out in ice hockey the clock stops automatically you can't do it yeah. in football because you get throw-ins and what have you so you know you kind of you know you can't um apply rules to everything in the same way um but no. one of the ones i find interesting was the 35 off, offside ball that yard, yeah. that, that that line that went across the the pitch that you only ever saw on a speedo pitch. Um, so different yes, rules. So right. you, you know, you could only shoot in that area, but um, they they kind of tried to tamper with that, which was interesting as well. Um, so just to explain, this was a, this was a line across the half, uh, thirty five yards, as Neil has said. Um, it's meant to increase scoring opportunities and recruit, re- reduce the frequency of defenses trapping. An attacking player in an offside position, so you couldn't be offside inside that um, thirty-five yard zone, so to speak, which uh, was meant to increase the um, eliminate offside as a call, wasn't it? It, it almost, um, in many respects, realistically did away from it. Did away from it in, in practical terms. The, ex- the experiment did get um, FIFA's blessing until nineteen eighty-two, and they, they must have withdrawn their blessing on that um, on that particular approach. Um, I always thought that was an interesting, it was an interesting idea. Um, you know, we're all wedded to offside. Um, I'm not sure it always makes for a great spectacle, but this was all about yeah. increasing the spectacle, wasn't it? It was. I mean, again, it was all about novelties and things like that. That's you know, I mean, obviously with my goalkeeping hat on. One of my yeah. favourite kind of gimmicks was when they got Gordon Banks to play out there with one eye. You know, it was kind of um, come see the one-eyed goalkeeper. But, you know, as Gordon Banks said, you know, when he first went back into the sticks with Stoke, he'd lost his perception. But yeah. he, he actually said that, you know, he, he got a coaching position and the more he trained, the better he became with one eye. Uh, but, right. you know, he, could like adjust he, got, it. he yeah. got a final payday. So it sounds, you know, a bit sick kind of thing. But, you know, yeah. uh, there, there's a great picture of him, you know, coming out onto the pitch on the back of a, you know, a motorbike, um, you know, police motorbike, you know, like you saw in Chips. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Speaking of Chips as well, you know, there's a great one where him and the rest of his teammates were advertising a fish and chip shop in wherever <laughs> it was he played. I can't remember where Gordon Banks played. But, well, yeah. Let's have a look at that. We'll, we'll check We'll check that out. And let's see. I mean, the, other, the, other rule, the other rule I really liked, and I would, I don't even know why we don't even think about it now, is they modified the penalty shootout because... Mm. In American sports, listeners, not telling you don't you don't know you don't really have win, you don't have any draws. You have wins or winners or losers. Maybe that's a very American idea. Either a winner or a loser. Um, and to settle um, any league game, they had um, a, 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 it was akin to a shootout. It was, it was a, the ball was rolled to the player in, in the centre circle, and I think he got five seconds to round the goalkeeper and score. Was it and, from the thirty-five yard line? It may have been, but it was it was certainly, you know, from distance, you were you were given the ball, the goalkeeper would come forwards, and there was this five second um what should we call it, a confrontation, shall we say, where you either scored or you you, you missed or you or you or you put it in the net. It was <laughs> I thought, thought that's a great idea. I don't know, you know, that the penalty shootout is again, it's become this um 
written in the you know it's holy writ almost now but um that actually a it, it promoted skill in that you've got to go and actually round the goalkeeper which is no easy task um and I've always thought it actually was it was something worth watching, you know, um, as a as a method to settle a game. But again, yeah, that was that was taken, seen as a, yeah. I think it was taken from ice hockey. So ice hockey, ice hockey. Yeah. So yeah, best of five, but only only done that way. You gotta take the puck to the goalkeeper and try and score. Great idea, great idea. I'd bring it back, listeners. Um, don't don't at me on Twitter about that. But that's I've always always enjoyed that. Um, and then they had their own. Um, point system in the league which veered away from from the norm as well um winningest i've, I've written down an american word here listen the winningest the winningest team in in the nasl was the new york cosmos which i suppose was the glamour powerhouse nil really when it pele's home beckenbauer's home five wins five, five soccer bowl championships um also the biggest attendance of course in the uh in the nasl's history um, I picked out some Millwall players that went out there. I mean, Barry Kitchener was the, 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 the in Millwall terms, the biggest of our names that went out. They played for the Tampa Bay Rowdies in 1979 with, with um, in a team that actually, I think it came second in that season's soccer bowl. So he almost won the championship out there, Kitch, which would have been lovely for it to, for to, to happen because that was probably about as close as he was ever going to get with success because he didn't get much with Millwall. Um, but I came second to the the Vancouver Whitecaps in 1979. Yeah, I remember. Well, that's the only reason why he can't be considered a one club man because he went out there. And I yeah. believe he missed the start of one of the seasons. I can't remember which season it was. He was late back. Couple... I think because they were on yeah. that winning run, weren't they? Yeah. yeah. So well, he missed 79, the start that was. Yeah. Season. Yeah. Um, but um, you could argue that Gordon Hill, um, because Gordon Hill went out there with Chicago Sting, made yeah. a Big name for himself, and you know, won a load of plaudits, and then came back and signed for Man United. Yeah, well, he, I suppose it was a it was a platform to establish a, an international reputation because you were up against some decent players, certainly if not decent teams, always certainly decent players. I love this uh, team. And um, Golden Hill played for the Chicago Sting uh, while still a, a Millwall player, then before he became a United player. Uh, the Montreal Manic. That's a great name for a club, isn't it? The Montreal Manic. It sounds like a psychological condition, not um, not a football club. Uh, uh, New York Arrows. I'm a Manic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just looking down. Gordon Jago. I mean, I think this would be post Millwall. He went. To, I think he left us to go to the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Yeah, I think he managed he, them. Yeah. It was burned out with English football as, yeah. as a result of um, Millwall's troubles and, and and issues at the time. He took Mickey Johns, our goalkeeper, with him. To Tampa Bay, um, Tampa Bay seems to have been a bit of a favourite. Actually, I'm just saying, Dave Nemet played for Tampa Bay Rowdies 1981. Tony Kinsella, Neil in, in '81 as well. Yeah, pitch with they, they went together. I think, yeah. The, the, some of the signings are weird. Some were short-term signings. Some were uh, loan deals. Um, Gordon yeah. Banks went to Fort Lauderdale Strikers, by the way. Um, but yeah, so the weird thing is, so everyone remembers Pete Bonetti. There's this kind of myth that he played for Chelsea for years and years and years, but he actually left Chelsea to go out there and play, I think, with Detroit for a season. And yeah. when he came back, Chelsea was so awful that they re-signed him, okay. um, which kind of breaks this myth that Chelsea never signed anyone for five years because he was slap bang in the middle of that. Um, yeah. But, you know, so a lot of people went out there permanent. Um, but, you know, a lot of the players, you know, mentioned how they went out and it was such a life change for them, you know, for their families as well. Absolutely. You know, they, they Who wouldn't? From, Who wouldn't take it? Yeah. I mean, I, from I, kind of, you know, should we say back in streets and northern towns out there to, you know, having you know, villas with swimming pools, etc. Yeah. And I think when we spoke about this before, one of the kind of side effects was that a lot of these teams wanted to promote their clubs. So they used to send the players to do training camps and talk to these youngsters and put them into schools to talk about soccer, etc. And yep. there's quite a few that attribute that kind of exposure to this kind of public speaking to their future success in business now away from football in later life. That so they learned how to talk to people and how to, you know, um, convey a message and, you know, yeah. be articulate. Um, which if you would have um, looked at some of the interviews of football players in the 80s, you can understand what we mean by that. But um, Well, there used to be this phrase that a footballer's brains was in his boots, were in his boots. Yeah. Um, a very contemptuous phrase, but that was the that was the idea. Um, of course, um, who's, I can't remember his name now, who went out there, who's, who's actually now big in Canadian soccer. 
Oh, Derek Posse. Adrian, Adrian Syria. No, Derek Posse, he went out there, didn't he? Posse. He was he was very, very successful in the NASL. And well, he would have won the, the Vancouver Whitecaps yeah. player, and that, that would have been that 79 soccer bowl uh championship because they won it over the Tampa Bay, which would have featured mm. Kitch, which would have been you know uh, I mean, this this list features Millwall related players. They some of them have moved on just seeing here um I mean Dennis Burnett was uh St. Louis Stars in the mid seventies. Um Sam Keith Weller. Keith Weller, yeah Keith Weller played player. New England yeah. team men, I think it was and Fort Lauderdale. He um yeah. Tulsa Roughnecks as well. And I think he was in the Tulsa Roughnecks side that had the worst ever defeat. They came and did a tour of the UK in 1983. I don't know whether Keith was in the side, but they lost 9-1 to the mighty Lincoln City. <laughs> Bad day at the office for the Roughnecks. Rough day at the office for the Roughnecks. Yeah. Peter Anderson, a legendary manager, um, who actually, I think, again, it's a similar point to the one you've made, Neil. Um, he, I think he became quite a successful uh, internet businessman, I think, in, in, in Florida. Computer software, played, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, and, Tampa um, Bay Rowdies, man, 78 and 80, San Diego before that. But now a successful um, man in his own right. Who's probably, I don't know how much he even thinks about football anymore. It's, um, the, Jay Go, we mentioned Nicky Johns, Dave Mehmet, Padden, Posse. Bruce Rioch played out there, didn't know that. Didn't know that. And Seattle what Sounders. Was that towards the end of his career? That would be as a player, yeah, uh, 19, 1980 and 81. He would have been coming towards the end yeah. of his um, playing career and probably thinking about what comes next at that point. Uh, and our own Barry Rowan played out there. Um, Detroit he did Coug- indeed, yeah. Cougars, yeah he, Toronto he, Metros. He was there in the late 60s, early 70s when, you know, um, they used to still bring out the team. So, yeah, I, I think one of the... I'm loath to mention them, but one of the, the trivia bits that um, I can't remember who they're playing for. I'm, I'm going to look this up, dear listeners. Go on, go on. This is one of those weird stats that. Um, I'll, I'll cut think, any delay out so you don't have yeah, to endure, no, endure the, the, the dead so air. The Baltimore Bays beat the Dallas Tornadoes 6 1. And the, the, the trivia thing about that was that three of the goals were scored by World Cup winners. Right, and they're all from the same team. That's because the Baltimore Bays were actually West Ham United who went out there to play as the Baltimore Bays for the season. Wow. And Jeff first, Bobby Moore, and uh, Martin Peters all scored, and Trevor Brooking got a hat trick. But um, the Dallas Tornado are actually Dundee United, so you know it wasn't as if they were actually American teams; they were actually important teams, lock, stock, and barrel to play as these teams in America. The when the uh, the league would would um, reach its conclusion as i said we we there was the probably an overstretch wages and falling attendances and it would actually come to a, a finish in 1984 as the NA, NASL. Um America does have this stra- rather strange um predilection for indoor soccer Neil, which has never really mm. grabbed the um the european or british english whatever you want to take your pick really mentality but it it seems to be a thing out there and a lot of the teams would mutate into indoor um major indoor soccer league i think with mm-hmm. NISL, um which seems to it seems to be a thing out there I've, I've never really seen the attraction of it, it, it I, I can't watch it on tv i mean you see these soccer sixes from yeah. time to time on and the summertime tournament sometimes i'll stick you know filler sports as i think of it but it seems to have achieved some level of popularity out there, doesn't it? It's similar to ice hockey, isn't it? It appeals. I suppose you could play it there, yeah. Yeah, and it's very quick, and there's lots of golf. <laughs> but it <laughs> is. I remember the reason why I remember that is because Sputia actually bought uh, an indoor soccer set. Now that was soccer. good. I, I used to have that. That was yeah. um, my dad. I, I said I wanted Sabutio from my dad for, for Christmas, and he came back with the. Um, it was played on like a board, and it had like rounded corners, and you could shoot around the corner and score a goal down the other end. And that's the, the Sabutia I would have paid good money to watch, but I'm not yeah. so sure about the actual indoor well, the, side of it. I mean, the soccer sixes, I think, are more aligned. It, it wasn't like the evening side, five-a-side championship, which we no. ruled at. You know, we won that no. three times. We ruled we West Friday. We, 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 we should have kept the trophy. <laughs> but, um, we, we were good at the evening standard five-a-sides, and, and our players really, really went big in North American soccer. So yeah, Roger Winter went out there, didn't no good at it. Roger Winter, who's you know, who made his name when we did the double of the evening standard soccer, yep, five a side trophy and the um, football league trophy. He actually 
went out to America and played indoor soccer because it was more suited to his game. The NASL would plant the seed that would go on to allow the uh, 1994 World Cup bid and some measure of national team success for both men. And we mustn't forget the women's sides, Neil, because I think one of the things that um, planting the seed of, of, of soccer, as we're calling it in, in the US, has been that kind of grassroots. It was seen as a kid's sport and as a, as a women's sport. And it really has achieved some big you know, large levels of support out there. So as much as it was a, probably a financial failure in the end, you know, it, it certainly led on to bigger and better things. And we see it now with regular live coverage of MLS games on, on Sky. Yeah. So, I think um, but there's an irony there in that although it was a financial failure and ultimately, you know, the popularity in colleges, et cetera, was quite high. I remember John McEnroe saying, you know, he used to love playing it because there was very few injuries compared to American football. Or you know, yeah, sports yeah. like that. And Henry Kissinger was a big fan. You know, there are lots of you know prominent supporters out there. But like you say, it became you know the women's team in America. You know, obviously won the world, the Cup, world you know, gold medalists, world world champions. Yeah, I think. number of times. You know, and the hope solo is you know, yeah, great goalkeeper. You know, you you know, it's one of the few people you'd say yeah, she could play in the 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 men's game kind of thing. But it's funny she mentioned women's football because. This is very controversial, I know, and this could get me into a lot of trouble. This, this, this could wreck the show now. What are you it's good, say? but the, you know, the women's super league in the in the UK reminds me a lot of the NASL in that you have artificial coverage, you have artificial um, levels of sponsorship, etc., and the right. crowds don't equate. So you know, you get these showpiece games like you did in the NASL, you know, yeah. the Yankee Stadium, etc., where you could draw seventy thousand. You know, and they play at Wembley. But the average gate is about 1,000 people, you know, and yeah, it doesn't yeah. support the salaries. So it's not me being sexist by any stretch of the imagination. It's just there's a lot of parallels with a league that is overfunded and doesn't pull in the same uh, levels of income, should we say, at the gate, um, which is where, you know, women's football in the UK has got to be very, very careful because as soon as, you know, one folds or you know someone loses interest and stops supporting that it has a domino effect and it affects other clubs because all of a sudden yeah it only takes one club to fold and then you've got a excess of players that can't find a team yeah. and then another club will fold and you've got an excess of players you saw it very briefly i think it was birmingham city that went out of business and obviously we had that issue with the mill lionesses yeah uh, yeah well and, it, kind of, and so on yeah yeah it, it's it's one it's the similarities are actually quite funny um in many respects and you know it, it's kind of teams being forced to be created because they need to which was exactly what happened in the nasl where you had teams created in cities because cities yeah. didn't have one and but they there wasn't the you know the grand swell of support there to keep it going once the money at um or should we say the interest or the investment had disappeared because people weren't seeing a return on their money so there's it, some quite interesting parallels at the moment this is a wonderful website, listeners. Thank you to Neil for um, forwarding fun that while it lasted.net. Do have a look. I'm a, I think I'd have to play for the um, the Calgary Boomers. I think that's probably my most appropriate um, team name if I if I had the talent to play for any any uh, um, any, any club or possibly the Caribous of Colorado with my country. Yeah, you'd look good with the <laughs> Um Wonderful stuff. Um, Really enjoyed that conversation, Neil, about the NASL. Um, wonderful days and um, a long while ago now, it seems, but somehow it still it still resonates after all those years. Huge thank you to Neil Crazy Hawks Andrews. The name of that book again, Neil, what was that one that you got there? It was uh, Rock, and Rock and Roll Football. And Rock and Roll Soccer, The Short Rock Life and Past Times of the North American Soccer League by Ian Plenderiff. Check there it out, is, listeners. There is another one. Um, I think it's called Soccer in a Football World, uh, which was published by When Saturday Comes. Uh, come, David Wangeren, I think his name was. Um, they're both really good books on, well, the the first one is specifically aimed at the NASL. It has a bit of history, but the Soccer in America, world, if you want to learn about you know football before the wars, that's an interesting read as well. It's a wonderful one. Just my eyes fallen upon, just looking at the... Um, the list of clubs under the in, in the fun while it lasted site listeners and there's a reply from a chap here go, uh, regarding a footballer Ronnie Ronnie Sharp who he lists as a former professional player played in the NAS yeah, and the Met Ronnie Sharp played he played up north somewhere someone like Tranmere Rovers 
Well, he, this is his, a little short bio. Um, Ronnie was born in Scotland and um, played for a junior side. I'm going to guess he came from Glen Rothes. Played for um, part-time football for Cowden Beef. Played for the Beef Nil in 68 to 73. Um, he then went over to the Miami Toros um, to play for um, the in the NASL. Um, a, few, a few years in the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. Um, Post career, oh, it was in the NASL All Star team of 1975. Post career, he owned the Fort Lauderdale Sun. Son of the United Soccer League. He owned Fort Lauderdale, son of the United Soccer League. That must be known as a league in 84. But was forced to sell the team shortly after winning the USL Championship because of his involvement in a Texas marijuana smuggling operation. In 1984, he testified as a witness for the US government as part of a plea deal. Sworn testimony indicated that Sharp was more likely a middleman and an active participant in the operation. These are the stories that we live for on this show, listeners. Um, I'm hats off to Ron. Yeah, I'm going to get hats off to Ronnie Sharp and say that's dope. That's a dope story, man. <laughs> great stuff. Um, so there, there's, uh, before we go, there is um, there's some great photos in these books, but there's one in Soccer in America which really shows the juxtaposition of life before and after the NASL. So you've got the glamour and the glitz of you know Pele and yeah you know, yeah, yeah. And best yeah and, um, yeah yeah uh, Mickey Mouse being the mascot and then you've got one <laughs> from like the years late eighties where it's kind of I think it's not even a college game it's an actual game that's played on the Sunday League pitch water flooded everywhere um, with the referees <laughs> wearing kind of like a baseball referee jersey and the goalkeepers <laughs> actually wearing a hoodie. <laughs> And, say, like, and the heights of the lows. Yeah, stardom. Yeah, that's right. It's a long way to fall out there. Fair Wonderful right. stuff. Really, really enjoyed that, Neil. The NASL um, and its middle linkages. I hope you enjoyed this, dear listeners. We're going to try and put a few other shows together. We've really been cooking up one or two off air with Neil. So um, if you enjoyed this and expect more, if you don't like it, don't listen to me, I suppose. <laughs> run away, run away. Uh, big thank you, Neil Andrews. Speak to you very, very soon, mate. Thanks for coming on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.